The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Later in this episode, we have two interviews about Marcel Duchamp, as a new show opens in Washington and the greatest collection of his work returns to the US from a tour in Asia and the South Pacific. But first this week, Tup Mania is back in the UK. A new exhibition, Tutankhamun, Treasures of the Golden Pharaoh, has just opened at the Saatchi Gallery in London and is inevitably drawing huge crowds. It's part of a lengthy world tour that has already visited Los Angeles and Paris and will tour to seven other venues in the lead-up to the centenary of the tomb's discovery by Howard Carter on the 4th of November 1922. The tour will raise funds for the Grand Egyptian Museum, which will open in 2020. The show includes 150 objects from Tutankhamun's tomb, 100 more than the British Museum show in 1972, which attracted almost 1.7 million visitors. 60 of the objects in the new show have never left Egypt before. In a moment, I'll be joined in the studio by Martin Bailey, our London correspondent, and Emily Sharp, our former heritage editor, who's now editor of Fairs and Special Projects. But first, when Martin visited the exhibition at the Saatchi Gallery, he spoke to Zahi Hawass, the leading archaeologist and the author of the exhibition's catalogue. He began by asking him about the money the exhibition will raise. The Tutankhamun exhibit, in my opinion, is not only helping in bringing money to Egypt. We can use for the restoration of the Egyptian monuments, for yeah. example, from Paris, we got $10 million. I mean, that's uh, a lot, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And this is why I really believe that Tutankhamun became like an ambassador to all of us. In a way that, you know, we had some bad press in London. I don't know why. Many journalists were against Egypt, but Tutankhamun is going to make it beautiful now. And he will bring tourism back. Yeah. Do you think a similar amount of money will be raised in London as in Paris? I really have to tell you that because, you know, the discovery of this tomb was like partner between the English and the Egyptian. Then now to break, you know, when I was here last year, I went to visit the cemetery of Howard Carter and yes, I found yeah. out what's written on the wishing cup. It's yeah. written on his cemetery. And this to show that this, in my opinion, will do as much as uh, what happened in Paris. Yeah. Yes. And will all the money be spent on, on uh, um, Egyptology and museums yes. and excavations? Yes, all the money that we from yeah. exhibits like what I did. When I sent Tutankhamun in 2005, I brought to Egypt $120 million. Yeah. And this money was used in the construction of the Grand Museum. With this money, I was able to make the conservation lab and the storage of magazines. And I took a loan from Japan to, con- to do the construction. This exhibit will help us in raising more money for the conservation and the restoration of the Egyptian monuments. And which other venues is it going to after It's London? going after that, go to Boston. And I think after that it will go to uh, Japan and Australia. It will tour. I think the last stop will be Sydney. During that, we will have a big celebration, the millennium. The millennium, which is two years from now, November 4th, 2022, will be the major celebration that Egypt and the whole world will do. And this is why I wrote this opera. Will the exhibition close um, for the anniversary and then the material will go back to the museum? Or what are the plans? We have a contract with with this IMG that the exhibit will continue, I think, until 2024. And what is the venue in Boston that is going to... It is connected with the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, yeah. but it is in an, uh, an, another private hall like that because the yeah. museum cannot uh, take all these artefacts. Yes. Yeah. And how confident are you that the museum will open um, in... A hundred percent. I'm in, telling in 20, you the reason, the reason that I'm saying because yeah. our president uh, insisted on a certain date and when a president... Uh, be involved in something like this means it will be opened in 2020 for sure. Martin, we heard a snippet from your conversation with Zahi there. What was the sort of biggest news to come from your conversation with him? Well, I was very interested in the fact that um, he said how much money had been got from the French tour. It was very successful. Um, They got well over, I think it was 1.3 million visitors. And the interesting figure he gave was that the 
um, French presentation of the Tutankhamun exhibition had raised $10 million um, for Egypt's um, new museum, which is um, being planned and built now. And it was interesting to have that figure. And I then went on to ask uh, how it was going to do in London. And Zahi said that he hoped or expected it would do just as well as it had done in Paris. Indeed. And I mean, this is is a really important thing is that this is quite an expensive exhibition to visit, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, the top tickets at the weekend are just over £37. And um, until recently in the UK, £20 was regarded as a psychological barrier and you shouldn't go above that with a blockbuster. Um, The museums have in recent years gone just above 20, but this is a real leap. And it'd be very interesting to see how it does. But astonishingly, and it's difficult to believe, but the organisers say that they have sold over a quarter of a million tickets before the exhibition even opened. And I mean, that's a really uh, mind-blowing achievement. Um, That's much, much more than any other um, UK exhibition has sold beforehand. Um, For example, uh, Tate Britain for its Van Gogh exhibition um, had a, a record of selling 33,000 tickets before the opening and this is a quarter of a million. That really is astonishing. We should say that this is this is not like visiting um, a normal museum exhibition. It feels much more akin from my perspective to visiting either a theme park or a musical or something. I think that's a bit unfair, actually. Um, They are museum objects, and that is why we're going to see them. Uh, There is a bit of show business about it, and the one thing that really annoyed me is the background music, uh, which is, um, well, I would describe it as supermarket music, and I'm not even sure it's music, supermarket noise. Um, There's a feeling that uh, one has to have musical background, and it's nothing to do with Egyptian music of the time. Uh, But other than that, um, I thought the presentation was really rather good. Um, There's a lot of space and uh, a lot of room to get around the objects, and they're presented simply and straightforwardly. So uh, I think once one gets into the show, then uh, the show business side of it tends to recede and one just enjoys the exhibition. I would would liken the music more to kind of spa music. And I was sort of half expecting that some of the these gorgeous urns that you see throughout the show would something massage oil would be sort of magically uh, produced from one of these urns. And and suddenly that, you know, I mean, it was it was to me, that was just definitely the most off putting thing. I couldn't believe that in every single space all the way through your journey through the show, there was this musical accompaniment. But it's interesting because you, I know, I know, I know that you tested this on uh, some younger members of the art newspapers team, and they kind of didn't notice that the uh, music was there. Really, yes, I was, I was a bit surprised. They, they obviously were so used to background music that, that, that they didn't notice. But um, uh, although it annoyed me enormously when I went into the first room, I did get captivated by the objects, and gradually I got used to the noise and. Um, the objects are so spectacular, and it is amazing uh, to think that they date from um, over three thousand over three thousand years ago, and they are incredibly beautiful objects, and they survive in such marvelous condition. And in that sense, all hype about Tut is really fair because we are seeing such amazing pieces. Emily, you visited one of the King Tut shows, I think it was in San Francisco as a child, and it was quite a transformative experience for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember I must have been uh, about three, maybe. Maybe I'm lying. Maybe I was a little older. I don't know. But um, I remember standing outside. It was at the De Young in San Francisco, and I'm standing outside uh, waiting to get in in a big, long queue, and I was sitting on my dad's shoulders. And I vivid, it's one of my earliest memories, actually. And then I do remember going into the museum, bits and pieces. I remember shiny, a lot of shiny things. And I remember having to be lifted up to look into some of the cases. But it really, it obviously, I mean, look what I'm doing for a living. It obviously had an effect on me. Did you get that same sense of wonder looking at these things in this exhibition? Um. not it. It was it's a, it was a very different exhibition than than the one that I went to in San Francisco many 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 years ago. This was uh, you still the hair still you know stands up on on your arms. It's still you still have that feeling because these are 
magical objects. Um, but there, there was a bit of theater um, in the way it was they were presented. So it did have a different feeling. But the, I mean, regardless, the objects are fantastic. I mean, that's that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is really weird because I, I had seen lots of the pre-marketing for this exhibition, and I assumed it was not going to be. 150 works from the tomb. I thought there was, I thought I was sort of thinking King Tat, to be honest. I was thinking, you know, replicas. I was thinking a lot of uh, uh, marketing gimmickry. And so I wonder actually if some of that kind of sort of showmanship that one perceives in the pre marketing is actually off putting for some. I don't know what you think, Martin. Well, I, I suspect the, the serious people will want to see the material and uh, the slick marketing may work with people who are wondering whether or not to go. Um, and I really would encourage people to go. Um, it is a wonderful opportunity and the material will not come back to the UK. You know, it's going to go uh, on the world tour and then it will end up in the new Grand Egyptian Museum. So uh, I really would encourage you to go and not be put off by the marketing. (laughs) That's it. So now let's just talk about these wonderful things. Um, So listeners, I enjoyed the show. It it is a marvellous show in the sense that you are confronted with 150, we're talking a whole hundred more objects than were in the 1972 British Museum exhibition, which of course attracted nearly 1.7 million visitors. Um, Emily, were there any sort of particular highlights for you? For instance, how did you feel about the way that the sort of thematic flow of the show worked? I found that I wasn't necessarily thinking thematically. I would go and I'd look at the objects and then suddenly I would realise, oh, this is a room about whatever, such and such, a journey to the underworld. And then, of course, you see boats, you know, models of boats, and you go, well, that makes sense. But I, so I was more drawn to the objects necessarily than even thinking about thematically. Um, but that was, just, that was just me. It was icing on the cake, I guess, is that there was, they obviously hung together, but it was, it was the objects I was focusing on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it, the, the, the objects are so dazzling uh, at times that you can get just caught up in journeying from, um, from display case to display case in a sort of state of almost hypnosis at how glorious they are. Um, but I also thought that they did the interpretation well for those people that if you did really want to read each, read about each object in the sense that you don't spend your whole time going through the show bending to look at labels because a lot of the kind of interpretation was actually above the display cases and I thought that was actually done very well because actually you could end up with real log jams around labels in that sense. Martin what did you think about the way that the exhibition was presented in that sense? I thought it was very well presented. Um, The captions on the labels on the actual objects were very brief maybe one sentence or maybe two short sentences telling you what you wanted to know about them. And uh, I felt that was the right way rather than presenting you with too much information. And it is the objects, as we all say, that is is just so amazing and attract you. And looking at the objects, you know, gives you a wonderful insight into, um, I was going to say daily life, but daily life for the pharaohs, (laughs) uh, for the very privileged community um, in those days. And in some ways, it's not too dissimilar from um, what it must be like today for the royals. Um, I also was struck by how well preserved um, the objects are. It's amazing to think they're so old. And the other thought I had when I see the pieces is that the aesthetics of them is quite similar to us today, which is absolutely astonishing. Um, Most antiquities that are thousands of years old are interesting to us, and they may be beautiful, but they're sort of rather different from um, what our conception of beauty is today. But um, the objects from Tutankhamun's tomb have this sort of um, sort of appeal that goes on forever that doesn't die. And looking at some of the objects, you could almost imagine that they were modern or that they had been produced um, in the 1930s in the Art Deco period when you see the lovely blue stones and the patterns and designs. And it is amazing to think that the Egyptians of so long ago had a, a similar sense, in some ways, had similar um, uh, senses or enjoyed the same things that we enjoy today. And that gives them marvellous continuity uh, to human life, which is precisely what the pharaohs wanted. They wanted to live forever. And one of the things I did, I, I after I saw the 
the Tutankhamun show, I went to the British Museum to the to the Egyptian galleries there because I wanted to remind myself to a certain degree about those galleries which I visited numerous times, but just wanted to sort of conceptualise how the Tutankhamun works uh, related to those objects, and it 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 was actually a really fascinating process because I you know you do realize that extraordinary luster that the uh, Tutankhamun objects have they they are so enormously well preserved they are so radiant in a certain way and while those collections in the British Museum are amazingly dazzling um there is something you feel like the Tutankhamun objects are just up another level, don't you? I don't, I don't know if you, that's your perception. Well, I was actually there at the British Museum yesterday um, for the very same reason, because I wanted to look at the um, British Museum's Egyptian material. I didn't know you were going to say this. Um, <laughs> so perhaps I could answer the question and uh, or, or comment on it. And I too was uh, struck. I mean, the British Museum galleries, are the, the Egyptian galleries there are probably the most popular um, in the whole museum. So they're very, very crowded and kids love them. But the material there in the British Museum, in a sort of visual sense, doesn't have anything to grab you uh, compared with the Tutankhamun treasures, which are really in a league on their own. And the other important point is that the, the British Museum, not surprisingly, doesn't have the space that the Tutankhamun exhibition has to present the objects. So you see things at the British Museum slightly jumbled up uh, together and it's difficult to separate out things. Um, and that's one of the wonderful things uh, that I think people will enjoy, visitors will enjoy um, at the Tut exhibition. Perhaps, Emily, you could give us a sense of how uh, momentous a discovery to, to the Tutankhamun tomb was. Oh, it was huge. It was the... At, at the time, and still, it intact, fairly intact. It's always, all the books you read always say intact. It actually was robbed in antiquity. Um, and when Carter came in, Howard Carter, the archaeologist uh, who discovered the tomb, when he came in, um, they saw some jewelry and, and other bits that were on the ground that had been, that the robbers had sort of dropped as trying to leave. So it was it was robbed in antiquity, and then it uh, was sealed up again in antiquity, um, and so it, you just didn't you didn't find intact tombs. Um, you still you know you don't find them. So it, it was a huge deal, um, and uh, a royal tomb as well. And I think when we were talking about the British Museum collection versus the uh, the exhibition of the King Tut exhibition, you're, this these are royal works not some of the BM's collection. It's a bit of a mix, and some of their mummies are everyday mummies. And so you don't have necessarily all the shine and, and the glitter and, and the pen cases that are, are gilded um, in the shape of a column. You know, these are really fancy artifacts. I was struck also, for instance, the, the comparison again between the, the Shabtis, these small figures that are the kind of workers for the king in, in Tutankhamun's tomb, and the Shabtis in, in, in the Tutankhamun exhibition compared to the Shabtis in, in the British Museum. And you, again, you know, the there are some relatively prosaic Shabtis in the Tutankhamun uh, exhibition, but there are some that are utterly glorious so incredible levels of detail and also martin you were talking about how well preserved they are they they look like they could have been made yesterday some of these things i mean that that to me is a again that sort of astonishing thing that that one one still almost has that sense of revelation that that carter had back in 1922 at the the pristine nature of these objects they are amazingly well preserved and and it it sort of beggars belief that we're talking about millennia here Mm. I mean, he's he did uh, conservation work on the objects. They have been well looked after over the years. You know, these are prized possessions for the Egyptian people, and they are, you know, they take a lot of pride in the in these objects and caring for them. And in fact, Martin, that was one of the things that they are raising money for, isn't it? It's not just the national, the Grand Museum that they're raising money for. They are the, a lot of these funds are going to go towards the conservation of these objects, not just their display and the place that they're displayed in. Yes, and that this new museum, which has been planned for literally decades, looks like it finally may open, or part of it may open next year. It's been such a long project, but it will be an enormous museum. And for the first time, there will be a large display of the Tutankhamun 
treasures. And I think that really will be mind-blowing. Um, there are the large objects which you won't see in London, which will be there. And of course, one will see all of the golden treasures and the golden mask, which was too important and too precious uh, to travel to London. Um, so it will be a major tourist attraction in Egypt. And um, I think the Egyptian government see the new museum and Egyptology as a way of wooing back um, tourists um, who've been deterred by largely terrorism in the last few years. So it's, it's, in that sense, it's quite politically important. It's important for the Egyptian economy. It's not just culture. That's right, isn't it? Emily, you, you're saying this, that the vital process of, of re-encouraging tourism to, to Egypt and developing funds to, to assist it. It's, it's, it. We are talking about a fundamental part of the Egyptian economy here, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the Egyptian economy, it, it relies heavily on tourism. And since 2011, it had, it's had such a, a, a dip um, and it's really affecting local businesses in and around the tourist, um, all the tourist attractions, um, the museums. Uh, and you know they're still having problems, and this this is this show is is a way. It's sort of almost like a marketing tool of saying, you know, this is just a sample of what we have. Come see everything else. If you like this, you're going to love this. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. That's the, I mean, again, astonishingly, there were there were close to five thousand objects that were found in the tomb, aren't there? And so we're we're looking at 150 here, but there's you know. Five thousand objects. There's there's plenty. Even while this these works are away, there's plenty there to, to for people to see if they do want to make a trip trip to Egypt. Even now, mm, definitely. And I, I it was interesting because some of the people, some of the people I've spoken to a lot of people. Everyone basically that I know that have seen the show were talking about it just to see what everybody thought. And some people were upset that they didn't that the golden mask didn't make the journey. And I think it's unrealistic to think that it would. We were talking. It's sort of. It's like the Mona Lisa going on tour again. You know, it's, it's just not going to happen. It's it's a it's a priceless treasure that it it made the rounds once. If you saw it, great. If not, you know, in your hometown. If not, you have to now have to go to Egypt to see it. And did, Martin, did you have any sense of anticlimax that, that, that the mask wasn't there at the end of the show? I mean, you sort of bit the show builds up, and I wonder if some people might be expecting it to be in that final room. Well, they may have been expecting it, but we knew it wasn't coming. And um, in a way, the less expected objects are just as good to show because they draw you in um, and you wonder why they were there, what was the purpose they served for the pharaoh's afterlife, and you uh, look at how they were made and what are the materials that they're made for. Um, so it's not just gold that glitters. In fact, there are wonderful loans that should be made for the first time that I wasn't expecting to see them and, and, and had known about. For instance, the Guardian figures, um, these these life-size figures that were that were guarding the, the entrance to the burial chamber, these extraordinary figures and, you know, sort of gold and black wood and really, I mean, marvellous things. Um, but then also, for instance, just as glorious in my mind as the, as the mask is this extraordinary tiny little sarcophagus looking object which actually was was um uh was was made to house the liver of Tutankhamun so that you know the the, the mm, um, beautifully the, crafted and just as just as beautifully crafted as as the mask no i mean this is the thing i mean it's almost like you know, even the tiniest objects are are just as beautifully crafted as that most famous object i think actually it's it's that um little jar basically um that people got confused that they thought that was going that was the mask because it looks if for those quick look you think it's the the gold mask because it just looks very similar that's it so it's just as ornate and 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 just as um beautifully constructed but it's actually tiny Mm. but but that's i mean that's one of the things about the show obviously there are lots of people about but they're managing the numbers and i found i was there during public hours and i found that actually while it was extremely busy uh, you were still able to spend time with the individual objects. Martin, if you visited in, in the press view and it would have been a busy, busy press view. Did you notice any sort of problems in terms of the way that the space is organised? Um, well, there seemed to be plenty of space. I think exhibition organisers and museum curators often design exhibitions and don't actually uh, realise there are going to be lots of crowds of people. 
And um, as a press, we're sort of privileged to get in first, and there aren't too many people. Um, the sp- so I don't know how it will work, but the spaces are quite large. Um, there is a problem in that the rooms, uh, some of the rooms are separate, and you have to walk down corridors, which interrupts it. But once you get into the rooms, they're large, and there's plenty of space around the objects. So I think it will work, but it will be very popular. Um, there is one rather amusing bit which happens at the end of the show which I felt we have to mention which is that you, you come to a, um, the what is clearly the end of the show because it's this big dramatic there's a film uh, aspect but there's also this huge stone sculpture which is this kind of you know you, it's the grand climax of the show and then there's this sign that tells you that directs you to gallery six and you know exhibition continues in gallery six so you think oh okay so you wander down the corridor and you come to gallery six and it's the shop exit via the shop (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's pretty extraordinary isn't it that they're claiming it as a gallery i mean i did think that's a bit insulting the intelligence of the audience you know Uh, well they are supreme at marketing well, I suppose that's the case. But and, and again, you know, uh, being charitable here, you know, it, it, the merchandise sales are going to be crucial in terms of raising the funds for, you know, the, the, the profits will exactly, go towards indeed, this museum yes. in, in, in Egypt. Um, overall, then, we're all saying, are we not just go and see this exhibition? Emily? Yeah, I mean, it... it, it it is what it is. It's your chance to see these objects that if, you, if you're not going to make the trip uh, to Egypt, here's your chance to see them. Anyway, even if, if I was going in the next year or so, I'd still go. You know, it, it's just, they're magical objects. And I think the, 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 the story of, of King Tut has fascinated people for generations. And I think that makes, there's that buildup when you go in and you do feel it. You feel that these are really special objects. So I would go. I would, I would definitely, I would recommend going. Well, a friend of, a very good friend of mine, um, said, "Oh, I don't think I'll go and see Tutankhamun. I've seen them in Cairo, and I went to the O2 exhibition, and I said to her, you must go.' And she went yesterday, and then she said, "Thank you." <laughs> okay, well, and I should say that as I left the Saatchi Gallery, there was a queue of about two hundred schoolchildren waiting to go into the show, and that made me really think. Well, you know, yes, I have these snobbish reservations about this exhibition, but actually there are 200 kids there and even if 10 of them are powerfully moved by this show you know one of them may end up a curator at the british museum well, one of them might be a young emily who would go <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's so important if people are fascinated by this ancient civilization we need this new next generation to become interested and fall in love with these cultures because you have all these archaeological sites that that need people, and especially in today's world with contemporary threats like an encroachment or climate change or war, we need people to get excited about these cultures and, and, and become their advocates. Amen to that, and perhaps do as Martin and I did and go to the British Museum afterwards. Thank you <laughs> both for coming. Thank you. Thanks. Tutankhamun, Treasures of the Golden Pharaoh, is at the Saatchi Gallery until the 3rd of May 2020. We'll be back talking about Duchamp in Washington and Philadelphia after this. One evening in the early 1980s, the New York artist Keith Haring paid a visit to Grace House, home of a Catholic youth organisation in Upper Manhattan. He went at the invitation of two members of the organisation he'd met on the club scene. After a couple of evenings DJing at Grace House, Herring agreed to paint a mural on the stairwell, which he did in a single night with no preparatory sketches or underpainting. Grace House has now closed and Herring's monumental 85-foot work, which has been cared for lovingly over the intervening years, comes to Bonham's post-war and contemporary art sale in New York next week. It's the first Herring mural ever to appear at auction. As Bonham's executive chairman, Bruno Vinci Guerra, said, the Grace House mural encapsulates a classic New York story by the ultimate New York artist. All of Herring's celebrated figures are here. The radiant baby, the barking dog, the figures dancing, executed with the artist's trademark wit and spontaneity. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Now, on the 9th of November, an exhibition devoted to Marcel Duchamp opens at the Herschel Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington. Marcel Duchamp, the Barbara and Aaron Levine collection, celebrates a promise gift from this Washington couple of more than 50 major works of art, including 35 works by Duchamp. 
Our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny, spoke to Evelyn Hankins, the senior curator at the Hirshhorn who organised the show, about the gift, the exhibition and Duchamp's enduring influence. First of all, what are the dimensions of this promised gift from Barbara and Aaron Levine? The gift comprises uh, 35 works by Duchamp, ranging from uh, an early drawing from 1908 of his sister, which I think does not immediately um, identify itself as a Duchamp, as we know Duchamp, through works from the 1960s. And in fact, it gives a complete overview of Duchamp's career um, through the gift, as well as works by some of his friends and colleagues, including Man Ray and a number of portraits and self-portraits of Duchamp. So it's a, it's really this kind of extraordinary gift that introduces you to Duchamp and gives you some context of his work as well. Did the Hirshhorn own any works by Duchamp prior to this? We owned one minor bronze from the 1960s, and that's it. So obviously, this is a transformative gift for us. Well, tell us a little about the Levines. Didn't they begin by collecting German Expressionism? They did. Um, Barbara and Aaron Levine are some of my um, favorite um, supporters of the Hirschhorn. I've been here for more than a decade, and because they're local, I've known them since I arrived here. They are incredibly passionate about their about art, um, and inquisitive, and curious, and constantly challenging their own boundaries. So, as you said, Aaron was first interested in German Expressionism. They started collecting um, American art. Um, from the 20th century. And then I don't know the, the complete trajectory, but eventually they made a shift to more contemporary art, um, post-war, interna- an international collection of post-war art, including a real emphasis on conceptual art and minimalism. And then they just keep collecting to this day. They're constantly looking for new and interesting work. And they are often the first people to identify young artists who later become of interest to us or other curators. They're, they're out there ahead of us sometimes. What attracted them to work by Duchamp, you think? Um, well, Aaron, they both are very attracted to Duchamp. Aaron is the one who um, Barbara describes as, as really obsessed, obsessed by Duchamp. Um, to me, I think that a lot of the ideas that are already in their collection, artists who they've been collecting for a while now, really kind of had their beginning or their origins with Duchamp. And so for me... They're interested in him, in him not only as the way he is kind of the linchpin of their collection, but also because he's so important for transforming our, our idea about what an artwork could be. So when you decided to organize the show around the gift, did you also have a thesis of some kind in mind? I didn't really have a thesis. I think for me, I was immediately struck by both the breadth and the depth of the collection. And I felt like this was a, a good opportunity to, do, to organize a show and a book that really can become a primer on Duchamp in the sense that you can learn about the entire arc of his career through this collection, which is really remarkable. Um, so the show is installed roughly chronologically, but not really. Um, it has moments of thematic as well. But the idea was to kind of um, introduce all of the important elements of Duchamp's career, whether it be LSOQ, for which he drew a mustache on a reproduction of the Mona Lisa, or the ready-mades, which were objects that he defined as art simply by deciding that they were art. Additionally, they have um, original drawings for the large glass, one of his most important works, as well as um, the Boite en Valise, this extraordinary compendium of reproductions of his own work, um, into the night works from the 1960s, which are optical works, such as the rotor relief. So for me, um, this was just a great opportunity to, to think about Duchamp and introduce him to audiences. And I think it'll, be, it'll appeal to people both who may not be so familiar with Duchamp and those who know Duchamp. I certainly learned a tremendous amount through organizing this show. One of the contributors to your catalog for the show begins an essay by stating that Marcel Duchamp is the most influential artist of the modern era. Would you agree with that or would you hedge to some degree? I would say Duchamp is one of the most influential artists of the modern era. I think um, the way he redefined what artwork could be and kind of broke open our understanding of what the limits of art were are obviously influential and are continuing to be seen in artists working today and kind of rethought. Um, I think that someone like Andy Warhol would probably come close, but I think for his moment, Duchamp was, was more, was the most influential. But absolutely, I think... The, the kind of the extraordinary way that he redefined art is is 
is pretty is pretty unmatched by most artists and we'll be organizing um, an exhibition next spring that looks at the legacy of Duchamp through the Hirschhorns collection. So hopefully that'll give people a sense to understand not only Duchamp, but then what his real influence was. He was born into a family of artists, wasn't he? Yes, he was. I think his, his brothers and one of his sisters were all artists. And, and did his art career begin conventionally or... It did. He um, he was he was he started out as a painter, he, and then he got rejected um, from one of the academies in Paris. After he moved there, he followed his brothers to Paris, um, since they were both artists. And then he and he he took some classes, and then he was rejected from the academy. And I think that was kind of the beginning of his decision to not follow a traditional artistic career. I mean, there were many times in his early career where. He he was either unaccepted or his work was um, dismissed, and I think it, it it kind of made him think very differently about the path that he would take moving forward. Well, in 1912, his painting "New Descending a Staircase," which is kind of like a a mechanized figure whose movement evokes a motion picture, was rejected for exhibition in a Paris show. Right, that, by a jury that included his two brothers. They didn't like the title, or what was um, their problem? I think well. I, I think the problem was, is for them, um, well, there were a couple of issues. Um, the salon was, uh, it was an exhibition organized by the Puteaux Cubists, and they felt that um, Duchamp's New Descending the Staircase um, didn't really fit their idea of what Cubism should be. Um, it kind of combined both Cubism and Futurism. At the same time, I think um, it was a, a very um, avant-garde representation of a nude. If you think about French painting or kind of classical representations of nudes, this broke all of the rules for, for representing the human body. And so I think it was a combination of both the way he represented the nude and the fact that his idea of cubism did not quite align with the cubism um, put forth by the organizers of the exhibition. Well, the next year it was shown at the Armory Show in New York, wasn't it? Where it caused a sensation. Yes. Yeah. It did, in fact, and Duchamp didn't come to the United States until several years after that, but he became a nationwide sensation. The Armory Show, of course, was this extraordinary exhibition of more than a thousand artworks um, by American and European avant-garde artists, organized, in fact, by um, three uh, art American artists. And there was a tremendous amount of criticism for the exhibition, but it was definitely Duchamp's new descending the staircase that um, received the most and the most vehement criticism for the, ex for the from the entire exhibition. How would you explain the intensity of that reaction? It was a cacophony of voices, in fact. Um, I mean, and, and what I was, am so struck by is all of the different ways that people criticized the work. There were cartoons that mocked the, the painting. There was criticism. Even, the, even Theodore Roosevelt wrote a criticism of the painting. You know, and then, so the fact that it could anger so many different people, both in the art world and out of the art world, is, was really striking. Did the work sell? I think it did sell at the time to a Chicago collector, if I'm not mistaken. And what part did money play into Duchamp's calculations? Was he interested in making money from his work? or He claimed not to be interested in making money. Um, and, and he was pretty, for, he, that's what he would usually say. And he actually, you know, there were times when he didn't sell very much work. And in fact, he supported himself in various ways, giving French lessons when he was living in New York City and um, also uh, actually dealing works by Constantine Brancusi, who was a friend of his. So he, he claimed not to care about the monetary value of his work, and he claimed to have real disdain for the market. But obviously, it was, it was out there. You, couldn't, you, couldn't, you, can't, you can never totally ignore the market as an artist. Uh -huh. Well, your show has a 1937 version of New Descending a Staircase. Can you explain why you returned to the subject? Duchamp often returned to um, his own artworks, whether it was the Boite en Valise when he reproduced, um, he made reproductions of a lot of his artworks, or the Green Box and the White Box, which are these compendiums there of um, meticulous reproductions of his own working notes for the large glass. And so New Descending the Staircase was another moment when he went back and, and revisited a subject. And I think for him, he was interested in thinking about um, how meaning is produced across media and across time and thinking about how, um, especially for someone who was interested in really challenging the idea of authenticity and the aura of an artwork, creating a print after a painting was a way to ask questions about where is the artwork? What is originality? You know, where is the artist's hand? What the, and why does it all matter? 
Well, that takes us to the ready-made, doesn't it? I mean, this mass-produced everyday object that he designated as art. The concept seemed to disrupt the idea of the artist as a creator of an original handmade object. What motivated him? What motivated Duchamp? Um, I, I would hesitate to ask. I would hesitate to try to state what motivated Marcel Duchamp, um, but I think he was. I mean, he talked about it historically. Um, you know, this idea that he he mounted a, a bicycle wheel, and you know, he liked how it looked when it when it spun, and that was the first ready-made. And he kind of talked about it in, as this kind of um, bemusement, and that I think is very reflective of Duchamp. This idea that he never. He presented himself as never really caring that much. Oh, I created this thing that transformed the world, you know, the way we think about art. But I was just kind of fascinated by the way the bicycle wheel moved. Um, But I do think he was very interested in um, challenging conventions about what is art with a capital A, this idea that an artwork had to be crafted by the artist rather than just chosen by the artist or selected by the artist. And of course, um, the, you know, the, the moment where that all broke apart is for the 1917 um, exhibition where he, he submitted um, a urinal, um, which he called Fountain, and he signed R. Mutt as an artwork to an exhibition. And this, this exhibition, he was, on the, he was actually on the, the committee for this exhibition, and the idea was that anybody who submitted an artwork and paid the fee would be exhibited. It was an open exhibition. It was really challenging this idea about salons and that certain people could make choices about what was put on view. But of course, then his fountain was then rejected by the, by the hanging committee, and he resigned. Hasn't some question arisen lately about whether he actually was the artist who submitted it? I think there is. There are a lot of questions about um, who was responsible for that, and I am not going to weigh into who. I, ha- I have not um, done the archival research myself, but I do think it's important to realize that um, Duchamp was part of a coterie of artists, and that I think he was always talking with other artists and and you know working with other artists, whether in, in a kind of formal collaboration or in a more informal way. So I would not be surprised if there was someone else who was, you know, who was involved in that and who who might have had the idea. And I think it's up to art historians to try to sort that out and piece it out. And then a few years later, he takes up chess playing, and he seems to have renounced the art world. Right. At a certain point, he um, decided that, uh, I love what he said, he said, all chess players are artists, but not all artists are chess players. And to him, there was a real parallel between chess and, you know, kind of the conceptual approach to chess and the strategy. And I think he approached his own art practice in the same way. So um, he announced at a certain point that he had given up art making and he was participating in chess tournaments. But in fact, during that time, he was still making artworks just a little bit more in secret. He was working on the large class and other works. So he never really totally renounced um, art. Well, I see that the Levine's gift includes a 1965 etching that's titled The Chess Player. Yes, I think chess is actually a theme that um, it kind of flows through not only Duchamp's own um, practice, but also the Levine's um, gift, you know, and there's also, he also, um, in addition to making etchings that related to chess, he also co-authored um, a book about chess strategy that's in the gift, which is really fascinating. He did all of the illustrations for it. And then there was his masterwork, which he finished in, I think, 1923, The Bride's Stripped Bare by Her Bachelors, even. Right, which is also known as The Large Glass. It seems pretty cryptic as a work, if not obtuse. Absolutely. I think it is one of the most cryptic artworks of the early 20th century. Um, It is this kind of exploration of sexual desire through the lens of engineering. Um, It's an incredibly cryptic work. And, you know, in so many different ways, it challenged what an artwork could be or how an artwork should be made. First of all, it was made on glass. It wasn't an oil on canvas, which was a very purposeful choice um, by Duchamp. He was interested in in what um, he described as the fourth dimension. And he thought glass was a very interesting medium to work with because you could both look at it and through it. And it was this different way of looking than we look when when we look at a conventional painting. Um, And there were all sorts of... um, interesting ways that he made the object. He worked on it for many years, first in all of these notes that I mentioned earlier that that later appear in the green box and the white box, but also um, in the way he let chance and collaboration um, play a part in the work. At a certain point, um, he had left the large glass on sawhorses in his studio and dust had accumulated. And his um, close friend, Man Ray, who he often collaborated with, um, came in. He was... um, 
practicing art photography. Actually, he wanted to become a better photographer of art because he was asked to photograph artworks and installations for the Society Anonyma Museum of Modern Art that Duchamp, Man Ray, and Catherine Dreyer started. And so um, Man Ray took this really quite extraordinary photograph of the, the layer of dust as it had accumulated on the large glass. And the piece is, has, um, has texture on it. It's not it's, it, the way it's made. It, it's made out of different kinds of materials and it has a very slight texture. And the photograph he took from a, in a raking light from the side and it looks like this very barren landscape. Um, it's called dust breeding. It's this magical photograph. And what Duchamp did, he loved the photograph so much, he then used glue to adhere the dust that had accumulated that he liked in the photograph that Man Ray had taken to the work permanently. So it both reflected collaboration and chance. And I just find that so interesting. Um, your show includes some preparatory works for the bride, doesn't it? It did. There are um, the Levines have um, several early sketches um, by Duchamp as he was working through through his ideas. The hanged female, the femelle pendu, is in it as well as um, an, a two sided, a beautiful two sided drawing um, where he is working through some of the forms for the bachelors. Well, by then he was apparently championing works that were completely cerebral. I mean, speaking of abstract expressionism, he's once said to complain that there's no gray matter going on there. So he's he's not fond of it. No, I mean, I think um, this idea of um, this kind of um, unmediated subjectivity or expression of the artist was definitely that abstract expressionism, um, that abstract expressionist artist offered was definitely the antithesis to what Duchamp was doing. Um, you know, for him, art was about ideas and it, it wasn't about self-expression. And I think um, it's not surprising that he wasn't very interested in, in painting. He also found painting to be a very uninteresting medium. I mean, after um, New Descending the Staircase and some preliminary, some really kind of quite beautiful paintings he made as he was thinking through some of the ideas for the large glass, he abandoned painting, which is a kind of interesting because he was actually a very good painter. When did he really become widely known to other artists? To other artists, I think Duchamp, I mean, obviously the 1913 Armory Show introduced him, and I think um, he moved to New York in the in the teens, and he um, circulated with a, a number of different artists through his associations with Walter and Louise Ahrensberg, two um, collectors of his work. And I think I think into the teens, he was known by his peers, but I think it was really in the post-war era that he became more well-known to, to successive um, generations of artists for many years because of what had happened in the Armory Show and the, um, the Independence Exhibition in Paris. He was very reticent to show his own work or to have exhibitions, but by the 1960s, as, as, as his life and career were coming to a close, he was more amenable to um, allowing museums and galleries to organize exhibitions. So Walter Hopps, um, who was then curator at the Pasadena Art Museum, um, curated the first American museum retrospective of his work in 1963. And artists such as Andy Warhol talk about the influence of that exhibition on their own art practices. Well, the pop artists seem to owe a debt to him. Would you say they do? Absolutely. This idea that art can be a representation of everyday objects, you know, or kind of thinking about consumer society. Absolutely. They're indebted to him. It seems like you can connect so many different artists to Duchamp. That's what's so interesting. You know, you could think about um, artists who work in assemblage as being connected to Duchamp because the, the artworks are made of found objects. You could connect conceptual artists who believe that the idea is more significant than the craftsmanship to Duchamp. And it's, it's, it's interesting how so many different groups, movements, and individual artists are, can be traced back to Duchamp. And I'm not sure if that's because it's just that's something easy to do or really because he is the linchpin for, for everyone. But obviously, the questions that he asks continue to resonate today. Well, he must have been important for the conceptualists as well in the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Artists such as Lawrence Wiener and uh, Joseph Kossuth absolutely are indebted to, to Duchamp. Um, you mentioned that beginning in April, you plan on opening a second phase of this exhibition that examines Duchamp's impact on modern and contemporary artists. Um, but it's based on work in your permanent collection. Do any obvious examples come to mind? 
think the exhibition will um, actually start with a gallery of artists of his peers and his friends. So it will include, and again, this is all from our collection. So there will be works from his two brothers and there will be works by Constantine Brancusi and Alexander Calder, who he was friendly with. And he actually named the, the, the mobile that Calder is so well known for, as well as Joseph Cornell, whose wonderful boxes, you know, obviously were in sync with some of the ideas that Duchamp was was working on. And I think what's so fabulous about the relationship between Cornell and Duchamp is that, you know, when Duchamp was assembling the the, the, the addition of the, the Boites en Valise, he needed the help of many different people. And at one point, Joseph Cornell helped assemble some of the works. And so there's a real kind of um, beautiful back and forth or collaborative spirit between them. So the show will start with an introduction to artists whose works may not be obviously or formally related to Duchamp, but were his peers and friends. And then um, I think there will be kind of galleries that look at obviously assemblage and the found object, and then an ob uh, a gallery looking at um, conceptual art. I think there will also be um, works thinking about gender bending and kind of identity. Um, and then I think there's going to be a, a gallery at the end um, that will have a have a work that kind of explores um, optics and, you know, optical works, not just being something that was, a, that appealed to you visually, but actually appealed to the mind. And, and I think the Hirshhorn's collection is a great way to kind of demonstrate Duchamp's influence or the way he kind of threads through future generations of artists. Do many young artists today acknowledge the influence of Duchamp over their work? I, I think artists, when asked, will acknowledge Duchamp's impact. It might not be a direct impact. I mean, it's it's been a it's been more than a hundred years since *Nude* descending the staircase and the ready-mades, you know, broke forth in into the art world. And they might not necessarily be thinking about Duchamp directly, but I think the way he redefined what an artwork could be has given them much more freedom in thinking about the contours of their own art practices. But absolutely, I think um, this show in many ways will appeal to artists. I think it'll be a great chance for them to see the artworks and think about them and, and think about the complexity of Duchamp. For me, I, I have been saying this recently as we get ready to open the exhibition, what I've learned in the last year and a half working on the show and, and thinking about Duchamp is he's a much more complex, contradictory artist than what I had thought before. You know, for me, I'd studied him in grad school and, you know, read books on him. But for, this was an opportunity to actually think, you know, there's the things we learn in grad school. And then there is the real kind of contradictions in the practice that I think make him more interesting. And I think for me, I'm hopeful that not only all visitors, but also artists will come in and see different facets of Duchamp's practice that they might not be so familiar with. And so they might re-enter Duchamp and think of him in a different way. Well, thank you, Elvin. Sure, it was my pleasure. Marcel Duchamp, the Barbara and Aaron Levine collection, is at the Herschel Museum in Washington, D.C. from the 9th of November to the 15th of October 2020. Now, the Philadelphia Museum of Art is home to the world's single greatest collection of Duchamp's work. Their exhibition, The Essential Duchamp, has toured through Asia and the South Pacific for the past year and has been seen at the Tokyo National Museum, the National Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art in Seoul and the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney. The tour marked the 50th anniversary of the artist's death last year when it set off and was the largest presentation of Duchamp's work ever seen in Asia. Margaret Carrigan, our deputy market editor in New York, spoke to Matthew Afron of the Philadelphia Museum of Art to discuss the tour and the homecoming. The works just returned to the museum in August, and it was a kind of homecoming, right? Because the, the collection of Duchamp is really integral to the museum. How does it feel to have it back in-house? Uh, yes, the Duchamp collection is an integral piece of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. The collection has been with us since 1950, when it was donated by Duchamp's principal collectors, Walter and Louise Ahrensberg. We were thrilled to be able to send a very comprehensive Duchamp exhibition from our own holdings to uh, Asia and the Pacific region. It traveled for a year. Uh, it was important for us to provide access to other audiences. But it is great to have the works come back after a year, and I had the pleasure of reinstalling the iconic Duchamp Gallery uh, at one corner of one of the wings of the building a few weeks ago. Tell me a little bit about 
some of the key works in the show and the themes in the show that really underscore Duchamp's place in the history of art or, or reveal something long overlooked about him. I know you noted once that um, Duchamp had said that New Descending a Staircase number 2 had in some ways overtaken his story and had left him, quote, only a shadowy figure behind the reality of that painting. How does the show redress that? The show was a great opportunity to, to lay out uh, our holdings of Duchamp chronologically in a story that covered his, his career from the beginning to the end. And this is an opportunity that we do not have normally in Philadelphia because of the um, space required and, and the fragility of many of the works on paper. But for the special exhibition, we were able to tell the story from beginning to end. And it was in four chapters. One of the chapters was about the early uh, work of the uh, artist up to his Cubist period and the famous New Descending a Staircase number two, for example. And what I saw when I first saw the exhibition actually on the walls at the Tokyo National Museum, which was the first venue, was something that I didn't quite understand before, and that was how these four chapters, you, you don't just have the artist moving forward in his career through time, but you also have the artist moving through phases where his work is so different, one from the next, in terms of the scales and the materials and the mediums and the ways in which he uses mediums. So the first section was paintings and, and drawings and prints, pretty standard. And every every section afterwards showed him working in completely different ways, but also with very different um, visual impact. And that, I think, was a revelation of the exhibition. So there's never been so large of an exhibition of Duchamp in Asia and the South Pacific. So what were some of the big responses from the audiences that were able to see it there? And, and how did they respond to it differently? Or, or what was the big takeaway from, from some of the institutions that showed it? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, the three institutions that hosted the exhibition are institutions with different points of focus and different uh, kinds of audiences. So in a way, it was a way to test out uh, what a, this kind of Duchamp exhibition would do in three, not just three places, but three different kinds of contexts, so exhibition contexts uh, and audience contexts. And our hope was that this exhibition would make a big mark on, on artists and on people who uh, are uh, knowledgeable and longtime uh, uh, fans of modern art and on young people who might have been coming to this material very fresh. I do know that the... Uh, in terms of the sheer attendance, the exhibition was successful beyond what I imagined in Seoul. And I took that to mean that it really registered with um, a large audience and hopefully an audience of young people at a, at a big museum focused on modern and contemporary art, which is what that museum is. Why was the tour significant for the Philadelphia Museum of Art? And, and maybe how does, how does this grand tour in a lot of ways reshape the history and context and legacy of an artist that already has such a big legacy backing him? Since 1950, when the Ahrensburg Collection was donated to our museum, part of our uh, job has been to take care of the Duchamp legacy uh, and we have done this in various ways, by doing exhibitions, by doing publications, by uh, having the, the largest uh, library and archives devoted to the artist, which has supported scholarship for many years. But we can't keep on doing the same kinds of things over and over again. So we really did something unprecedented for us, and indeed unprecedented, in organizing uh, this traveling exhibition to go uh, elsewhere in the world. And we think that this extends and uh, uh, enriches uh, our success in taking care of the Duchamp legacy. And we will continue to uh, keep working on new projects, which find other ways to uh, send this artist out to uh, an audience across the world, which is very interested in his work. I think that uh, an exhibition in Asia and the Pacific was important because no matter how well-known Duchamp's name may be across the world and how well-known some of his key works may, may be in reproduction, still nothing uh, replaces the experience of seeing the works uh, themselves. And that's something that we really made it possible to do for those audiences. Obviously, with the big two-part exhibition coming up at the Hirshhorn and the collection being reinstalled at the Philadelphia Museum, what do you think continues to draw people to Duchamp within the U.S. too? And why now? 
Duchamp continues to fascinate audiences because of his uh, his his sense of humor, uh, his sense of surprise, his ability to shock you out of your preconceptions about art and where it fits in to life and to the world. Uh, he continues to uh, be, as he has been, especially since the 1950s, uh, a, a, a key touchstone for gen- continuing generations of young artists. For us, the the uh, the providing access to to Duchamp uh, remains a very, very important priority, given the uh, continuing interest in his work. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You can see the Duchamp collection back home in the Philadelphia Museum now. And that's it for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you've enjoyed it, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. We're also now on Spotify. You might also want to subscribe to the art newspaper itself. Go to theartnewspaper.com to find the subscription to suit you so that you can read our reporting across multiple platforms. While there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Click the newsletter link at the top right of our homepage. And why not sign up for our new monthly newsletter called Market Eye with comment and analysis every month from our market experts in London and New York. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julian Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Zahi, Martin and Emily, to Nancy and Evelyn, and to Maggie and Matthew. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.